Tantor Audio, a division of recorded books, presents Chapelwood. Tantor Audio, a division of recorded books, presents Chapelwood by Sherry Priest. Narrated by James Patrick Cronin and Julie McKay. Leonard Kincaid, American Institute of Accountants, certified member. Birmingham, Alabama, February 9th, 1920. I escaped Chapelwood under the cover of daylight, not darkness. The darkness is too close, too friendly with the terrible folk who worship there. Darkness would give me away if I gave it half a chance. So I left them an hour after dawn, when the reverend and his coterie lay sleeping in the hall beneath the sanctuary. When last I looked upon them, taking one final glance from the top of the stairs, down into the dim, foul-smelling corridor lit only with old candles that were covered in dust, I saw them tangled together, limb upon limb. I would say that they writhed, like a pit of vipers, but that wasn't the case at all. They were immobile, static. It was a ghastly, damp tableau. Nothing even breathed. I should have been down there with them. That's what the Reverend would have said if he'd seen me. If he'd caught me. He would have lowered me into that pallid pile of flesh that lives but is not alive. He would have reminded me of the nights I've spent in the midst of those arms and legs, tied together like nets. For yes, it is true, I have been there with them, among the men and women lying in a heap in the cellar. I have been a square in that quilt, a knot in that rug of humanity, skin on skin with the boneless, eyeless things that are not arms and are not legs. I dream of it now, even when I'm not asleep. But never again. I have regained my senses, or come back to them, having almost fled them altogether. So what sets me apart from the rest of them, enthralled by the book and the man who wields it? I cannot say. I do not know. I wanted to be with them, to be like them. I wanted to join their ranks, for I believed in their community, in their goals. Or I thought I did. I am rethinking all the things I thought. I am fashioning new goals, goals that will serve mankind better than the distant dark hell that the Reverend and his congregation seek to impose upon us all. They taught me too much, you see. They let me examine too many of their secrets too closely, and taste too much of the power they chase with their prayers and their formulas. When they chose me for an acolyte, they chose poorly. I take comfort in this, really, I do. It means that they can misjudge. They can fail. So they can fail again. And indeed, they must. In retrospect, I wish I had done more than leave. I wish I'd found the strength to do them some grievous damage, some righteous recompense for the things they've done and the things they strive to do in the future. Even as I stood there at the top of the stairs, gazing down at that mass of minions, or parishioners, or whatever they might call themselves, I was imagining a kerosene lantern and a match. I could fling it into their midst, toss down the lighted match, and lock the door behind myself. I could burn the whole place down around their ears, 
and them with it, and maybe also burn away the boneless limbs which are not arms and are not legs. But even with all the kerosene and all the matches in the world, would a place so wicked burn? A place like Chapelwood? A place that reeks of mildew and rot, and the spongy squish of timbers going soft from the persistent wetness that the place never really shakes? How many matches would it require? All of them? I stood at the top of the stairs and I trembled, but I did not attempt any arson. I did nothing bolder than weep, and I did that silently. I can tell myself I did something brave and strong when I walked away and left them behind. I can swear that into the mirror until I die. But it isn't true. I'm a coward. That's the truth. I was a coward there at Chapelwood, and I am a coward every day I do not descend upon that frightful compound with a militia of righteous men and all the matches in the world, if that's what it would take to see the place in ashes. Not that I could muster any such militia. Even the most righteous of men would be hard-pressed to believe me, and I can only admit that my case against the Reverend may well sound like nonsense. But the strangeness of my message makes it no less true, and no less deadly, no less an apocalypse in waiting. In time, perhaps, they will reveal themselves as monsters and the city will rise up to fight them, and the one thing working in my favor is that, yes, there is time. Their mechanizations are slow, and that's just as well. What horror would the universe reveal if mankind could alter it with a whim and a prayer? No, they need time yet. Time and blood. So there is time for the men of Chapelwood to make a mistake, and I will be watching them, waiting for them. Stalking them as they have stalked others before. Which brings me to my recent resolution, and why I'm writing of it here. Do I incriminate myself? Fine, then I incriminate myself. But I will incriminate the Reverend, too. I will incriminate them all. And when my time comes, I will not go down alone. I will not go quietly. And I will not have the world believe in me a fiend or a madman, not when I am doing God's own work in his name. If he should exist, and if he should see me, then he will know my heart and judge me accordingly. I have tried to pray to him again and again. Or rather, I have tried to listen for him again and again. He does not speak to me. Not so that I can hear it. It is one thing I envy the Reverend and his followers. Their God speaks. Or is their God the devil after all? For it is the devil who must make his case. This must be how the Crusaders felt, when tasked with the awful duty of war and conquest. A necessary duty, and an important one to be sure, but awful all the same. My duty is awful too, and I will not shirk away from it. I will confront it. I said before that they showed me too much, and they did. They invited me into their confidence because of my training and my aptitude for numbers. I've always had a head for sums, and I've worked as an accountant for the city these last eleven years. They needed a mathematician, 
a man who could see the vast tables and workings of numbers and read them as easily as some men read music. I was flattered that they considered me worthy of their needs. I was proud to assist them, back when I was weak and eager to please. I took their formulas, their charts, and their scriptures, and I teased out the patterns there. I showed them how to make the calculations themselves, how to manipulate the figures into telling them their fortunes. I believed. Do you understand? I believed that the Reverend had found a way to hear God speaking, and that when he talked, he spoke in algebra. I was right about part of it. Someone is speaking to the Reverend in proofs and fractions, but it's not the God of Abraham. I don't know what it is or what else it could be. Some other God, perhaps? Is that blasphemy? No, I don't think so. It can't be, because the first commandment said, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. It did not say there were no other gods. It said only to eschew them. Would that the reverend had obeyed. Would that I had figured it out sooner. That I was hearing the wrong voice when I scratched my pencil across the paper, tabulating columns and creating the tools the church would need to hear the voices of the universe without my assistance. It is not so easy to live, knowing that I may have given the reverend a map to the end of the world. So I will do what I can to thwart him. I will take matters back into my own hands and take the formulas out of my head and commit them to chalkboard, to paper, to any surface at hand. And I will beat them at their own game. It won't be any true victory on my part. Too many innocent people will die for this to be any great triumph of justice and virtue. And they will die at my hand. Because if they do not, they'll die at the hands of the church. And worse things by far will follow. So I am to become a murderer of a man or two or three. Or however many until the reverend makes enough mistakes and attracts enough attention that someone somewhere rises up to stop him in some way that I can't. Or else until he succeeds. I must account for that possibility, and I will write it in as a variable when I compile my equations and build my graphs. This string of numbers will haunt me until I die. Or until we all do. I have determined the Reverend's next target, an Italian woman who lives down by the box factory and works there with her mother and sister. She is an ordinary woman, thirty years old and unmarried. Her hair is brown and her eyes are brown, too. She goes to St. Paul's on Sundays and Wednesdays, too, if her work and health permitted. I will try to catch her on the way back from her confession, to leave her soul as clean as it can be. I will try to grant her that much. But if the Reverend forces my hand, then I will have to take measures. So I can only pray that she prays, and prays often. She's done me no wrong, and her death will cause great sorrow. But it could be worse. And that's what I must remember when I take my weapon and hide it in my coat. I must remember the equation written at the top of my slate in my hidden little flat. And I will tell myself as I strike that it is this woman tonight or the whole world tomorrow. It's a terrible sum. Father, forgive me, for I know precisely what I'm doing.
Father James Coyle, St. Paul's Church, Birmingham, Alabama, September 15, 1921. Ruth has run away again, or at least I pray that's what's occurred. She hasn't come here yet in any case, and it's clear that she's come to think of this church as a refuge. Maybe she's found some different refuge further outside of her parents' grasp. I'm not sure what to hope for. I'd like to know that she's safe, but I'd also like for her to be safe. The truth is, she might be safer somewhere other than here. We've had to hire guards for the first time in our recorded history. I can scarcely imagine it. Who would have thought we'd see such a day? But the clansmen come to St. Paul's, and their brethren come, and at night they try to set little fires and throw little stones, and so we've gotten ourselves a tiny army to keep them at bay. This is a place of worship for pity's sake. We have children here, learning their letters and their catechism. We feed the poor and shelter those who lack all shelter otherwise. Why would they harass us like this? Why would they drive us from their city when we've done our best to serve it all these years? The worst part is this. I know it's only the beginning. The election looms, and it looks like George is on the way out. Without him, you can safely bet Police Chief Egan will be sent packing too. And then what? Then who is left to stand between us and the unruly mob? Nathaniel Barrett's campaign is a study in horrors. He would make us illegal, in essence. He would starve us out of town if he can't run us out. His new laws would ban any business from employing any Catholic, a prospect enforced by a series of vigilance committees that would, one must assume, terrorize the locals until there's no place left for our people to earn their daily bread. For God's sake, they even let the Negroes work, and they firmly believe they're less than human. So what on earth do they think of us? It all ties together somehow. Ruth and the strange church, Reverend Davis and his true Americans. I suppose the Reverend is the linchpin there. The bigots have financed Barrett's campaign, and the bigots are led by the shadowy minister, who likewise lures the Stevenson family out to Chapelwood, where Ruth is subject to scrutiny, abuse and threats presented like promises. There's something black about it, something dark and nasty. I know it in my heart. Though the heart is deceitful above all things, that's always and overwhelmingly true. I have prayed and prayed and prayed and listened for all I am worth. But at night, when the scurrilous men in their dumb white sheets sneak about the grounds, I look up to the heavens for some kind of answer and I see nothing, not even the stars. I've concocted half a plan with regards to Ruth. She must escape her father and I must help her. I promised and I will see it through, though my powers are tightly limited given to circumstances. What can I do other than offer her a haven that's under assault? I can pray for her. I can teach her. I can marry her off. Pedro and I were talking about this after he returned from delivering one of the messages that Ruth and I passed between us. For the last year or so, he's performed odd jobs for the family, as Dave repaired and restored their house. He assisted them with some roofing work and with some windows. I think he also paints and probably does any number of other useful things. It rouses no suspicion for him to come and go from their home. Pedro is old enough to be Ruth's father, and a widower at that. 
His care for the girl is less that of a lover than a friend, I believe. But he too is concerned for her. He's seen the fear in her eyes and heard it in her voice. I'm sure he's seen it in her handwriting, which shakes more wildly with every missive. The poor dear is falling apart at the seams. But if she runs away to get married, her father has no more authority to drag her back home or to church or anywhere else. Pedro is willing. I am willing. I can perform the service, and it would be legal and binding, no matter what any incoming politicians would care to think. Now all we can do is hope that she turns up safely. If she doesn't, perhaps by tomorrow afternoon I'll go over to Chapelwood myself. Into the pit of vipers, yes. But I have the cross on my side, and a promise to fulfill. The girl needs me. God, she needs someone. I've spent the last few weeks collecting information on this strange church in the forest, on the Reverend's old estate. There isn't much to collect, I'll be honest. What I've found through public records amounts to a hill of beans. Chapelwood is registered with the county as a Christian congregation, under the banner Disciples of Heaven, which is as vague and meaningless a description as I've ever heard. Is it formally authorized to perform weddings and baptisms, all the ordinary things I can do here at St. Paul's. Yes. The property was once part of a private farm, which was sold off piecemeal after the war, and Reverend Davis's father purchased the bulk of it. I think the church Ruth describes might actually be the original farmhouse, strangely augmented over the years. Or then again, maybe it's one of the barns, having undergone a conversion of its own. It is now privately owned by the Reverend, though parts of the surrounding property are held in trust by a private firm. And on the board of this firm, I've spotted two names that are prominent in the clan, and three others you'll find in the front row of every true American's meeting. The coincidences are piling up. The overlap, I mean, between Birmingham's corrupt politics and the Chapelwood estate. It might well be argued that bigots sit at the top of the power structure here, and so you might well expect to find them at the top of the churches, the businesses, and a political heap. But these newer groups, the true Americans and their guardians of liberty in particular, their rise coincides with this sinister place of worship. I may believe in divine contrivance, but I don't believe in coincidences. Yes, I think there's a difference. My notes are thin on the ground, but I'll make a point to send them east regardless, to Boston and an old friend of mine there. He's an inspector. That's all I'll say about his job. A man about my age, or a little younger, with a head for peculiar facts and a nose for the weird. Then again, maybe I ought to restrain myself. I've been sending him letters and clippings on the axe murders since the start of August, and I've heard nothing from him in return. He could be off on a case, and therefore out of the office. I hope he's well, at any rate. I'm sure I'll hear from him soon enough. He's not the kind to leave a man waiting. Not on purpose. I'd like to see him again. He's a jovial fellow, as strange as the good Lord ever dared to make one, but a stalwart friend in times of difficulty. He's also tough to scare, and I could use his stout-hearted assistance right about now. Well... If the axe murders aren't enough to lure him out for a visit, I'm sure the Chapelwood matter will bring him around. 
I sense that it's more to his taste. Ruth Stevenson, Birmingham, Alabama, September 4th, 1921. Letter addressed to Father James Coyle, St. Paul's Church, Birmingham, Alabama. I've been thinking about what you told me, about demons and God and everything else we can't see, but still take for granted. You can't be completely wrong, and I know that for a fact, because I've seen it myself, and I'm so afraid I just don't know what to do. You don't know my daddy, sir. You don't know what he's like, or how he gets. You don't know what he's gotten himself into. But I'm going to try to explain it, and maybe you can help me, since you did offer to try. It started back in January, when daddy got caught pretending to be a minister so he could marry people down at the courthouse. Our pastor saw him, asked what he was doing, and got a straight answer out of him, more or less. I'd give him credit for telling the truth, except that he'd been caught red-handed, and he would have looked stupid for lying about it. Daddy hates looking stupid. I guess everybody does, but you know what I'm trying to say. He takes it personal when you call him out. So when Pastor Toppins caught him pretending to be something he wasn't, they started arguing. And then, right before you know it, Daddy had to find a new church. He said he might as well make up his own church, if it was going to come to that. And at first, I thought that's what he was planning. But then he got drinking and talking with some man from the true Americans, who said maybe we ought to try out the Reverend Davis's new flock. Daddy said no at first, because he ain't no Baptist. But this fellow, I can't think of his name, but it was Haint or Ham, something like that, said it didn't matter because it was supposed to be a meeting of like-minded men, and anybody who wanted to hear the word straight from the Bible with a patriotic Southern bent ought to come out to Chapelwood for Sunday services. I didn't want to go. Because I know what it means when somebody says, patriotic Southern. That just means it's made for angry white men and to hell with everybody else, me included. My daddy's been angry and white his whole life, and it's gotten him nothing but mean. It's gotten me and my mama beat, and it's gotten us broke. And it's gotten him nice and drunk a whole lot, which gets him even more ornery. And that's about it. But... He made me and my mama go with him out to Chapelwood where all the other angry men go. Some of their wives were there too, but I didn't see any children anyplace. Come to think of it, I was probably the youngest person there, and I'll be 21 in August. So we went, and I haven't been able to shake the bad feeling it gave me ever since. We rode up to the main house, or lodge, or whatever it is, in a cart because... We don't have a car, but that was okay with the reverend. He had somebody put our horse up and greeted us warmly, like this was just any Sunday service. And I think Mama felt a little more at ease about it when she saw him acting like everything was fine. The reverend was wearing all black, like you do, but it wasn't like a priest's black or a pastor's black. It was something like a clan robe done up in black instead of white. It had this strange gold trim on it that almost made the shape of a star when he held still and it hung down off his shoulders. You couldn't see his feet at all, and his hands were covered in black gloves. 
Not leather riding gloves, but cotton, I think. Under those long arm sleeves, his hands looked strange, like his fingers didn't have any knuckles or joints. They moved like an eel moves, all smooth and just about boneless. Please don't read that and think I'm crazy. He invited us up the stairs of that big building. I guess it was a house, come to think of it. Probably the biggest house I've ever been inside in all my life. Even though we didn't see too much of it. Just the church part in the front. It was shaped funny. It made me think of a cross between a castle and the courthouse. There's lots of stone, lots of columns, several towers. But it don't look like a church. That's what I'm saying. The stairs were wide, but not too tall, and I had to make little tippy-toe steps just to get up them without tripping myself. The whole thing was just so damn uncomfortable, if you'll pardon me saying so. I knew it from standing outside, from pausing there and looking up, or from looking down at my feet, trying not to fall when I followed everybody up inside, that it's not a church. And it's not meant to make people feel safe or comfortable. It's not meant to be a friendly place that welcomes people from outside. It's a prison. And it's meant to keep people in. I figured that out for sure once we went through the door. It was a little door, not something big and open that swings back and forth to let the Spirit of God come and go with his people. And everything inside was dark. Not dark like your church, when the lights are down and all your candles are lit. That's a warm, nice kind of dark. And I can still see where I'm going. In your church, there's all that light from the colored windows, and it glitters off all the gold and the wood. Your church glows. This place, it didn't give off light. It ate light. When I was a little girl and I told my mama I was afraid of the dark, this was the dark I meant. I couldn't see my own two feet at first, when the door closed behind us. Hardly even my hands, if I waved them in front of my face. I blinked a whole lot, and after a few seconds, I could see a bit. But I didn't see nothing that made me feel any better about being there. The pews and the altar up front, all of it was painted black. And not a shiny black, like the kind that gets polished. This was black like a slate without any gleam to it at all. There were colored glass windows up high, but they were real dark. The glass wasn't red and blue and yellow. It was dark purple, dark green, and I don't know what else. Maybe it was more black. For a bunch of fellows who don't like black people, they sure do like black everything else. Folks started moving around. I know this because I heard them not because I saw them. I think they were all wearing robes like the reverends. Or they were wearing something real dark, anyway. I stood out like a sore thumb in my Easter best, like Daddy had insisted. I was wearing pink and yellow, even though it wasn't spring at all. Then my parents disappeared, or I thought they did, and I thought about yelling, but my mama grabbed my arm and told me she was right there, and everything was all right. Someone had come up behind her and put one of those robes over her. And I guess they did it to Daddy, too, but he didn't say anything about it. I think he left. I think they took him someplace else to talk with the Reverend. 
someone took me and my mama to one of the pews and had us sit down, so we did. I was shivering, partly because I was scared, and partly because it was hardly any warmer inside than it was outside. And it felt real damp. It felt like the inside of an icebox with a block that's mostly melted, so it's all cool and wet inside. I held my mama's hand tight, and she held it back, but she didn't really strike me as being too worried. I don't know if Daddy had a word with her beforehand and told her what to expect, or if she's just so used to being scared of things that this wasn't any big deal to her. Anyway, the Reverend started his sermon, if that's what it was. Mostly he talked about how our idea of heaven isn't right, because most people think of heaven as being some pretend place, or something that happens to us when we die. But he says it's not. He says it's a real place, and it's out beyond the stars, so far away that if we looked up with the biggest telescope in the whole world, we wouldn't be able to see it. He says the constellations are a map, and that there's a god, yes, and there are other things that aren't exactly angels, or not angels how we've always thought about them. He says that a whole lot of years ago, these other kinds of angels lived here on Earth. They lived in our oceans, and they ruled everything, and people served them. Eventually, they left us and went back to the stars, and someday, they're coming back. The Reverend knows this because he says they talk to him. He says he's found more maps, not just the constellations, and not just the things buried in rocks that are a million years old. I don't know, Father Coyle. It all sounded like craziness to me, and if that's the kind of God who's coming back to call us all home, I don't think I want to go with him. But while he was talking, I got the weirdest feeling that the windows up above near the ceiling were moving around somehow. Maybe not the windows themselves, but the patterns. Like they were swirling or spinning. I'm not sure. Maybe there were clouds overhead, and the light was doing funny things. Maybe my eyes were just playing tricks because it was so dark in there and I'd been there for so long. Finally, the reverend was finished, and I thought it was time for us to go. I said a little prayer to the regular God, telling him thanks for letting me out of there because I'm telling you, it was so dark I could hardly breathe. Does that make sense? Well, maybe it don't, but that's how it felt. We stood up to go me and Mama, and something touched my arm. I want to say somebody touched my arm, but it didn't feel like a hand grabbing me. It felt like a snake wrapping up around my wrist, cold and smooth, all muscles and no bones, like the reverend's fingers inside his gloves, but much bigger. It was real strong, and it squeezed me real tight, so I let out a little yell and jumped back and it let go of me. The church door was open, and a little bit of light came inside, so I ran toward it, and I practically threw myself out onto the stairs. I stumbled down them, and I was breathing heavy, trying to catch my breath, even though I hadn't run very far. I'm telling you, I couldn't get out of there fast enough, but I couldn't get as far as I wanted. I felt dizzy and tired, even as scared as I was. I didn't know where they'd taken the horse or the cart, 
So I didn't know which way to go in order to get myself home. I wasn't thinking so clearly. I was almost dizzy from all that darkness, all that being inside someplace so closed up and crowded. I wasn't sure what to do, so I stopped at the bottom of the steps. That's when I heard them talking. My daddy and the reverend. Or I guess it could have been someone else. Everyone had those robes on, and they still had their hoods up, so it was hard to tell who was who. But I knew Daddy's voice when I heard it. They weren't quite whispering, but they were chatting all quiet-like, just inside the church. I couldn't see them, but their voices came floating down in bits and pieces, and mostly what I gathered was that they were talking about me. I don't like that place, Father Coyle. I don't want to go back there, and I don't want to see the Reverend again. But Daddy's already talking about heading there next Sunday, and I don't think I can stand it. Please, sir, if there's anything you can do, anybody you can talk to. I need a friend. I need help. Lisbeth Andrew Borden. Fall River, Massachusetts, September 4th, 1921. I was making tea when the newspaper arrived this morning, hitting the porch steps with the usual graceless ruckus and startling the cats who gather there waiting to be fed. Sometimes I think the paper boy aims for them, and it's some stupid childish sport. But if that's the case, then his aim is worse than his manners when he comes to collect his fee on Tuesdays. Thus far, no cats have been struck, and they are content to sit in a row and watch him ride past on the new red bicycle his parents bought him last month. They stare at him with lazy, narrowed eyes, but ears and whiskers on high alert. They know a brat when they see one. I finished the tea and poured myself a cup with just a dusting of sugar and gathered the scraps and kibbles the cats have come to expect. Then I made my donation to the feline breakfast fund and took a seat in my rocking chair to watch while they politely cleaned their plates and licked their little chops. They have no idea who I am, apart from their personal kitchen staff, and they wouldn't care if they did. They are forever tidy, civil and gracious, and I am charmed by their tendency to climb into my lap and purr, working in tandem with the tea to keep me warm on the chillier mornings. This morning, it was chilly, but not so bad that I did not sit with them for a while in companionable quiet, the paper boy notwithstanding. I'm not being fair. I'm sure it's just the boy's job that he's been told a thousand times to aim for the front door. I've made that impossible for him, haven't I? When I rebuilt the front porch a few years ago, I made sure to give myself privacy and the cats some shelter for the nastier days of winter. He couldn't hit the front door unless he came inside and stood before it. I suppose he does the best that he can. But I've heard him whisper when I've gone to town. I've seen him and his nasty little friends. I know what they call me. I know what they say when they think I'm out of earshot. It's nothing new, and by now you'd think I'd be accustomed to it. 
But sometimes it gets under my skin all the same. I ought to be too old to give a damn. But I do like the cats. Emma, when you were alive, I hated to shoo them away. Through no fault of their own, they made you sneeze, and you had problems enough breathing without their accidental interference. Now that you're gone, I can lure them as close as I like, and even let them inside if they're amenable to it. Most of them are content to remain outdoors, but one or two prefer the fireplace around January. Who can blame them? Now that you're gone, and Seabury's gone too, I take my friends where I can get them. Sometimes even now, especially late at night, I think I can hear you, Emma. Up in your room, which I've made into an office, I awaken in the wee hours to the sound of the bell, like the one you used to ring when you needed me. In my dreams, your voice is no longer feeble. It doesn't struggle for volume or crack when you raise it. It's the voice of a stronger, younger woman than I knew you last. The woman you should have been, and might have been, if things had been different. So if anyone haunts this place, I know good and well it's you. And yet, despite my esoteric interests, I'm afraid to make any effort to find out for certain. I wonder if Dr. Owens haunts his old home anymore. I thought I saw him there once, after his funeral. I attended in black and a veil, not that it concealed my identity in the slightest. Because I wished to show my respect for a man who was such a fine friend and ally in difficult times. Never mind that his mind was so badly troubled in the end. I needn't have bothered with my civilized disguise. Only three people attended the service. He was so far gone to the community by the time he left it for good. He lingered until 1899, barricading himself into that grand old house he once shared with his wife. And then he left to join her in the cemetery by the old Presbyterian church on 8th Street. I'm not sure who found him, but he hadn't been gone very long. I know, because I'd seen him only a few days before. He'd been much the same, distracted and disheveled, scarcely recognizing me, but seeming to appreciate my presence. We sat in the parlor and had tea, while he told me stories about the lights in the water, or fish-pale things with starfish hands that he'd seen in his dreams. Disturbing, as always. But I owed him... So I listened to him and let him talk so long as he was willing. At any rate, someone found him and extricated him from that house, stuffed to the brim with all manner of things he'd collected. In the end, the place was only navigable by a series of paths he'd either created or worn with his own foot traffic. I thought perhaps someone would burn it to the ground and build something new in its place. I couldn't imagine anyone cleaning it out and restoring it, for the doctor had no family left who might inherit it and feel some sense of obligation to it. But I've been wrong before, and I was wrong again. Someone bought it for a song, cleaned it out, and listed it for sale. 
I forget who bought it the first time, and I forget who bought it the second, third, and fourth times, too. No one ever keeps it for long. Which is why I wonder if he haunts the place. I think he might. As I said, I remember walking past his house before anyone had emptied it and made it habitable again. I remember I was still wearing the black of his funeral, so it must have been that very day. Forgive me. It's been so long. I forget the finer details and only remember them by way of other minor particulars, which, for some reason, remain more firmly fixed. I stood outside his house and looked at it, very consciously not looking across the street at that other house. Our old house. You know the one. There are some memories I can't unfix, not for all the trying in the world. And inside I saw, just for a flash, a tall shape with a shock of white hair. I would swear to you this flicker was faster than a gasp, there was a streak of maroon to it, like the color of the old smoking jacket he used to wear. He practically lived in that thing in those last years. It smelled terrible. I wonder if they buried him in it. I bet someone buried it, at any rate. I am not entirely certain that I believe in ghosts, but there's no good reason not to, considering... I would like to think, and I know you don't wish to hear this, Emma, but I would like to think that if anyone was going to haunt me, that it would be Nance. God, just writing her name. I shouldn't have done it. I'll cross it out. After all this time, it's still too awful. No. After all this time, the worst part is not even knowing how awful it really is. For all I know, she isn't even dead. That's not true, though, is it? In some form or another, she's definitely dead. Oh, she's so far gone, so far removed from me, that she might as well be dead. I can only hope and pray that wherever she is, whatever became of her, she's happy or free from pain at the very least. I can only hope, if there's any god of any merit whatsoever out there, that he'd grant her that much. But what do I know of god? Not a damn thing. Wait, I was going to write about the newspaper, and I almost completely forgot to. The newspaper. It makes me think of you. Remember how you received so many of them, and so many periodicals from so many places. Every time I collect the paper, and every time the mailman comes, I think of you. I still order papers from out of town. I still order magazines, though not the technical ones you always preferred, with all the diagrams and Latin in them. I am but a layman, from a biology standpoint. That was always your field of expertise, my sister. The things I order these days are either more mundane or much more strange. On the one hand, I gather gossip and follow the goings-on of the suffragettes and their continued push for women's rights. On the other, I order religious treatises from many different faiths, 
I follow their conferences and their research, and I keep up with where they stand on a variety of issues. There's more overlap between the two than you might expect. On a third hand, someone else's hand, perhaps, I've become terribly interested in the spiritualism movement. Do I agree with every jot and tittle of their sprawling and flexible views? Not at all. But the fact that their tenets sprawl and are flexible, that's meaningful to me. Almost as meaningful as their admission that many things happen that are unexplainable by science. Or traditional, Christian, one must qualify, religious inquiry. I know precisely what you'd say to it all. Something about me taking my superstitious inclinations too far, right off the deep end. That's what you'd tell me if you were here. Well, you're not. And if you were, we'd only quarrel about it anyway. So I watch with interest and without interference what becomes of their little enclaves. Such as Lilydale in New York and Casadega in Florida. Sunset in Kansas, Chesterfield in Indiana, Pine Grove in Connecticut, Etna in Maine, and so forth and so on. In some ways, they are so progressive. And in others, I am not so certain. But that's to be expected, isn't it? Balance. Always balance. Regardless, I appreciate the broad scope of their search for meaning. I like the way they don't stick to the usual paths in pursuit of truth. Heaven knows the usual paths never got me anywhere. Though, in the name of balance, I should add that the unusual paths mostly brought me sorrow. One day, I mean to visit one of these camps. I'll do it quietly. It shouldn't be hard. No one recognizes me anymore. Thirty years will do that to a woman. That's... One small grace granted by Father Time. In my case, if none other, I am not anonymous here in Fall River. But should I leave, no one elsewhere should have the faintest idea who I used to be. And what I did, or did not, get away with. The question, then, I'm sure you're asking yourself is, why I've stayed... I wish I had a decent answer, but you know I don't. I have instead a host of indecent answers, each one more frail and ridiculous than the last. I stay because this is my home, and it always has been, despite everything. I stay because I love this house, even without you in it. I stay because you're buried here, and... Dr. Owens is buried here. I stay because Nance left me here. And what if she were to return only to find me gone? I stay because I like the cats. The point is, I stay. You probably thought I wouldn't. You probably thought that once I was free of you and your infirmity, I'd take to the wind like a dandelion seed. Then again, you were always wrong about that one thing. I never thought you were a burden. You were my beloved sister and dearest friend. I wish I could have convinced you of it. 
I wish, even in my head, right now, as I natter in this journal, as if you'll ever read it, that I could not hear you arguing with me. In my head, you're waving Nance in my face. And it's unkind of you, really. I wish you wouldn't. Maybe it's not the house you haunt. Maybe it's me. As I mentioned, I turned your bedroom into my office. After I walled up the basement, that is. I couldn't stand to be down there anymore. Not after everything that happened. And once Zollicoffer was gone, the monsters stopped coming. So I emptied the basement of all the books or notes that might be of some use to someone, somewhere, and dragged the other contents out into the backyard to burn them with the fall leaves. I would have burned the basement itself, if I thought I could have done so without destroying Maplecroft altogether. So I settled for sealing everything shut from the outside, and having some discreet handymen remove the door in the kitchen. They replaced it with a wall of such fine quality, you'd never know there was once a passageway there. Most of the time, even I forget. But the rest of the time, when I wake up drowsy in the middle of the night and wander downstairs for a drink of water or to stretch my legs after a nap, I look toward that blank space, and I'm momentarily confused. It's times like those that I worry for myself, afraid that my own mind is starting to slide like Dr. Owens's did. Or worse yet, Dr. Zollicoffer's. But I'm not a doctor of any sort. Perhaps the madness will leave me alone, then, if it exclusively pursues those who aspire to higher degrees. So I took your room, and now it's an office. A fairly ordinary one, considering. To be sure, some of the books and papers are strange, but who cares? No one ever sees them but me. I've got a desk in there now. And I've moved your bed out into the spare room past the water closet. It took me all afternoon to do it by myself, but the damn thing is heavy as hell, and I wanted it out. Then I was sad that I'd moved it, because the room didn't smell so much like you anymore. These days, it barely smells like you at all. There's just a whiff of you, once in a blue moon. A tiny current will carry you back to me. A hint of that lavender perfume you always liked, or the jasmine soap you preferred. A note of your own personal chemistry. The scent of your hair carried to me, light as can be, out of nowhere. And there you are, like you'd never left. It's always you, and never Nance. I've sniffed the whole house for her. On more than one occasion, closing my eyes and following my nose up and down the halls, all over the guest room where she last stayed, and all over my room where she stayed more often. But there's nothing at all. Only me, and sometimes one of the stray cats, and then that last ghost of you trailing behind, saying you'd told me so, all along. It doesn't matter miss you both terribly. In my heart, there are a pair of holes, one shaped like each of you. No cat can fill it, and no one else even tries. 
But I've done it again, haven't I? I've forgotten about the newspaper. I received one from Atlanta, a city so far distant that it may as well be in another country. And come to think of it, for a brief stint in the 60s, it was. Sherman may have burned it down, but it's coming right along, so far as I can tell. Its newspapers are good, if that says anything in its favor. They cover events well outside the city, in other parts of the short-lived Dixie and beyond it, too. But obviously, it was not the Atlanta Journal that landed on my doorstep. It was our own Gazette. And our own Gazette has run a story that I first spied in the Southern paper. Thus, the connection in my mind. I made it immediately, and you'll understand why. Here's the pertinent bit of text. Still no leads in an ongoing crime wave in Birmingham, Alabama. Perpetuated by an armed assailant the locals have dubbed Harry the Hacker. To date, some eight people have been assaulted. Six of them fatally by an unknown man with a hatchet. The victims include city residents of every stripe, business owners, pedestrians, and young revelers out for entertainment. Harry the Hacker. That might actually be as bad as the nursery rhyme some fool composed about yours truly. And dubbed by the locals? I strongly doubt it. That handle stinks of a junior journalist who wants to sell papers. And it's bound to work. But whatever facts our local source has noted are dated and incomplete. The fuller story or some version of it, is available through the Atlanta Journal, and I've recently mailed a request to receive the Birmingham paper of record as well. Not purely due to some morbid fascination with axe murders. I hope you believe me when I say that much. But because I want the details that were left out of our local coverage. The Fall River Gazette mentions the story only as an afterthought, a blurb of nationwide interest to fill a few column inches when nothing else is going on. From what I've gathered via the Georgia rags, the case is much stranger than a set of simple assaults that fit a general pattern. There's talk of weird churches, anti-Catholic demonstrations, and eschatological street-corner preachings. All this in the midst of a city already plagued by the Ku Klux Klan, a group more sinister and suspicious than most people have any idea. And their public face is troublesome enough without any secret agenda hiding behind their ridiculous robes. I tell you, they're stranger than the Freemasons and not half as well thought out. But they're radical, blind believers of awful things. I don't enjoy researching them, not in the slightest. But how am I to confront evil if I can't accurately identify it? This is what I'm trying to say. Something about the case feels familiar to me. Or maybe familiar isn't the right word. But I do recognize it. Something about the details. Something about the things left in between the cracks of what's reported. There's a shape to it that frightens me, even as it occurs a thousand miles away. After what happened here in Massachusetts, back in the 90s, 
Is a thousand miles enough distance to feel safe? No, I shouldn't think so. Not a thousand, not a million either. I wouldn't feel safe on the moon. So, I'll watch the matter. And I'll collect my newspapers, and I'll tack my clippings up around your old bedroom, and we'll see how big the story grows. Maybe the whole thing will peter out, and nothing will come of it. And that's an eventuality devoutly to be hoped for. But in the case it doesn't, in case it spreads and sprawls, I should really keep an eye on it. Maybe I ought to go there for a visit. Let some idiot dubbed Harry take a swing at me with an axe. If some lone maniac explains the crisis. It's been a while since I've swung an axe of my own. But I think I could give him the surprise of his life all the same. Ruth Stevenson, September 19, 1921. I shouldn't have done it. But I'm glad I did. Daddy wasn't home. He'd headed off to a prayer meeting and left me with Mama to set up supper for him. It wasn't quite dark yet, but dark was coming, and we had just turned all the lights on and fired up the stove when my Mama saw the neighbor's dog digging in our backyard garden. She's been swearing and throwing shoes at that dog for ages, and it made her mad to see him stroll right on up and start making a mess. So this time, she took off her apron, threw it on the table, and said she was going to go smack that thing silly. I didn't really think she'd catch it, but it was halfway funny watching her try. She ran around the yard with a rake, swiping it back and forth, never noticing that the dog was having a grand old time. He figured they were playing a game, and she figured she was going to beat him blue and maybe go over to Mr. Marks and start swinging at him, too, since it was his dog, after all. Not much has been very funny lately. Not halfway, or even a quarter way. Birmingham has become a city full of men in hoods, or men with axes. It's a place where dark churches swallow people up whole. It's not a place where too much happens to make you smile. So I watched her for a minute, and then I heard something. A thump and maybe a sliding noise, like something heavy being dragged around. I tried to tell myself it was my imagination, because that's what you ought to do when you know you're inside a house by yourself, but you hear something heavy moving around in your mama and daddy's bedroom. Their bedroom. That's where it was coming from. There was something in there. I listened hard, and it wasn't my imagination at all. And it wasn't funny, neither. It wasn't no happy dog playing tag. It wasn't my sister, because she had the good sense to be married and living someplace else. It wasn't anybody. It didn't sound like a person, anyway. It's hard to explain, but I felt that weird thing again. That dizzy feeling I've been getting a lot, especially since Daddy started dragging us all to Chapelwood. Almost like I'm sick, but not quite. Almost like I've been spinning around with my arms out, or hanging onto the merry-go-round while a big man shoves it faster and faster, and it spins so hard, 
so fast that it almost throws me off into the sky. Mama calls them my little spells and says it's nothing to worry about. Even when I tell her, I can hear her long-dead mama trying to tell me something from some attention. Either way, it's hard to respect her. It's hard to trust her, too. Whatever's happening, she's no ally of mine. Father Coyle says I shouldn't be so hard on her because it's not really her fault. I know he's kind of right, but I don't think he's totally right. Sure, she's gotten used to Daddy and his ways, and yes, I know, she's doing the best she can to muddle on through this life like everyone else. But at some point, a full-grown woman has to be accountable for her own self and for the choices she's made. That's how I see it. And I see my mama just closing her eyes and pretending that none of this has ever been her fault. And none of it has ever been up to her. And that just isn't true. She's had plenty of chances to choose one thing or another, one person or another, one church or another. But she lets him choose for her. And that's a choice too, isn't it? But I had myself a little spell. And that's a good way to talk about it, I think. A spell is a magical thing, and not always a good thing. That's what I learned from the library books I used to sneak home before Daddy caught me one time too many. My little spells are magical, and they are bad. Like I've pricked my finger on a spindle, and I don't even know what a spindle is, but apparently it's something sharp and gone to sleep for a thousand years. Or that's what it feels like I'm trying to do. These spells, it's like there's a dark fog creeping in, coming at me from all sides, making it hard to see. It sneaks up and wraps itself around my eyes. It feels like the lights have all gone out. I couldn't see the light on the stove or the gas lights we had just lit up, even though I could hear them hissing. I knew they were on. But I couldn't see them. After a few seconds, I couldn't really see much of anything. I staggered around, holding onto the chairs to keep myself from falling, and I closed my eyes. Because when you can't see anything, at least it ain't weird if your eyes are closed. And maybe that's dumb, but that's what I thought. So that's what I did. Usually, when I have a spell, this is the part where I start hearing voices. Most of the time, it's nobody I know. But sometimes it's Grandma or our neighbor, Mr. Miller, who died when I was 13. I never knew him well when he was alive, so I don't know why he's so chatty now that he's in the ground. But I didn't hear any voices. I was all alone with the other noise. I closed my eyes and I saw that sparkling black light. You know, the kind when you've held your breath too long or stood up too fast after being half asleep. Some people say it's like seeing stars, but it isn't. The stars don't move. Not in those darting, fizzling patterns. Stars don't wink on and off and go out altogether when you shake your head, trying to fling that spell away. In the big bedroom, I heard it louder and louder. That thump, slide, and drag. I thought I was taking myself away from it, but I must have got turned around. I found a doorknob and I turned it, thinking it'd let me outside. 
And I don't know why I wanted to get outside, blind like I was from the spell and from closing my eyes. But I turned the knob and shoved the door, and I knew, even without being able to see, that I'd just opened up the bigger bedroom where Mama and Daddy slept. I opened my eyes, for all the good it did me. I saw only the shadows of their furniture. The bed, the two shiffer robes next to each other, up against the wall, and a little bedside table where my mama used to keep a Bible. But I bet she doesn't anymore. And I saw something else, too. Another shadow. One that shouldn't have been there. Something about as big and long as an oak root, coming right out of the wall, swaying back and forth along the floor. I rubbed my eyes and didn't see anything no clearer. And maybe that was for the best. I didn't really want to look at it anyway. I tried to move away from the thing, to get myself back out of that room, because it was the last place on earth I wanted to be. I found the doorknob behind me, grabbed it, and ran, slamming the door behind me. But then the damnedest thing happened. And it don't make no sense, but this is what it was. I wasn't in the parlor like I ought to have been. I was back in the bedroom. Or still in the bedroom, I couldn't say. I was so confused, so scared. All I know is I went through the door and I didn't go anyplace. And I was just about to stop breathing. I was so afraid. Then the thing on the floor, the tree root or snake tail or whatever it was, it came for me. It took me by the ankle, and it wound itself up tight, and I started screaming. But it only squeezed harder until I thought it was going to take my foot off. It slipped up my leg, up to my knee. And the more of me it touched, the more I could see again. But what I saw, it couldn't have been real. I saw stars when it held me. Real stars, not the fuzzy kind your brain makes. I saw heaven. So far away and so strange. It was heaven. It must have been. Somewhere out past the clouds, past the stars. They went by me so quick, it was like they'd turned into streaks. Into long, white lines. I was moving through the universe, and it was all so bright and so dark, too, that I didn't even notice I wasn't breathing anymore. I couldn't breathe. There wasn't any air. There was only the feeling of being squeezed all over my whole body and watching the stars stretch and explode and fade away. I could hear my daddy's voice somewhere, even though he wasn't with me. I heard him and the reverend talking. I heard my mama talking too, but not to the dog in the yard and not to me. I heard a thousand voices, all up inside my ears, and I was all alone in my parents' bedroom, except for the thing on the floor that I couldn't see, but I could feel it. And it was trying to tell me something, but I didn't know what. That's true, I think. It was trying to talk to me, using the words of all the people I ever met, ever talked to. It took the words from one person and mixed them up with the words from another person, mixing and matching, lining up letters and voices that were so scrambled, it was like listening to a thousand preachers all telling different sermons at the same time, as loud as they could. No, wait, it wasn't quite so personal as that. It was more like 
standing in a hall with a thousand Victrolas, each one playing a different record. The words I heard in my head didn't come from real people, living and speaking. They were just recordings cut up into pieces. Sweet Jesus, it's hard to explain. I caught single words here and there. Lost. Falling. Come. Why? Drop. Star. Water. Here. If I hadn't been so scared spitless, I might have written some of them down. Maybe if I could write fast enough, I could catch enough of them to mean something. I'll start carrying a notebook and a pencil, in case it happens again. I hope it doesn't happen again, but if it does, I'll be ready. I don't know what it wanted, and I don't know what it was saying, but I felt my whole body going limp from not breathing. I don't know how long I wasn't breathing. I just plain forgot to do it. But when I remembered, then I took a little breath and a bigger one, then a real deep one, and I started screaming my head off. If these are little spells, like Mama says, then I broke this one with the screaming. Just remembering to breathe, remembering I could scream and shout and kick and fight, it did something. It shook me loose from the thing in the room, and... There was this feeling of moving so fast, so fast that it made my skin ripple and my eyes bleed. And there were stars shooting by like gaslights. And then I was just in the room again, all by myself. Outside, my mama was calling for me. I guess she heard me yelling. But I didn't want to see her or talk to her. I didn't want her to come after me. I wanted out of that house and... That's all I wanted. I still couldn't see too good, but my sight was coming back. I felt my way to the door, and this time, it let me out. It didn't send me right back in, so, yes, this spell, I broke it my own damn self. I'll remember that next time. I'll tell myself over and over again, you just have to breathe. That's it. Breathe, and then make a whole lot of noise. So, if there's a next time, when there's a next time. I have a handbag in my room. There's not much in it, only a little money I've earned, and some personal things, and a little pocket knife I carry in case I need it. I grabbed it, and I grabbed my coat, even though it wasn't so cold that I really needed it. So help me God, I ran. I ran to the edge of town and right through it, right across it, where the axe murders have been going on for the last year or so. Right there down by Five Points, where the Italians have their shops and their restaurants, and the Jews have their family banks and their movie theaters, and the girls my age don't walk home by themselves. Or with colored boys, neither, because there are awful men who will hurt you if they catch you together. That's what everybody says. I ran and ran, and I just hoped that anybody carrying something so heavy as an axe wouldn't be able to catch me. But to be real true with myself, I wasn't that worried about it. I had bigger worries and stranger things to be scared of than some angry folks with weapons. So help me God, I ran. So help me God.
So help us, God. So help everybody, God, because there's only so much we can do to help ourselves. I ran to Father Coyle because I didn't know where else I should go. And when I talked my way past the guard with a gun and got myself up into the sanctuary where he was praying over his candles and his books, he looked real happy to see me. He gave me some tea and something to eat, and he let me talk. He let me ramble about the Victrolas and the stars, and when I was finished, when I'd run out of words and sat there shaking... Then he told me he had an idea. It was a crazy idea. But these are crazy times, and I've got nothing better. So help me God. I'm going to do it. I'm scared, though. I don't think it's going to be so easy that Daddy will let me go, and Chapelwood will let me leave and never come back. Just because I take a husband. The law may respect it, or then again the law may not. Around here, you never know, but that church in the woods sure as hell won't. And my daddy won't either. Father Coyle is a good man, and St. Paul's is a good church, and it deserves better than what this city is throwing at it. People don't always get what they deserve, now do they? Sometimes they get a lot better, or a lot worse. I'm afraid for how it's going to go for my friend the priest once word gets around. He's drawing up a wedding license for me, and he's going to sign it. I'm just praying to my God and his God, in case they're listening, that he doesn't sign his own funeral slip while he's at it. He says he's not worried, that we'll put ourselves in heaven's hands, and all things will work together for good. Well, maybe they will, and maybe they won't. So I'll worry for the both of us. I've seen heaven, I think. It hasn't got any hands. And I don't think it cares one way or another how much we trust it. Inspector Simon Wolfe, Boston, Massachusetts, September 23rd, 1921. Axe murders. Apparently we need one great round of them per century. But at least this time, they've happened relatively early and well away from New England, taking place down south in these reunited states. This particular spree occurs in Birmingham, Alabama, named for an old English city, I suppose. Not that it's much of a connection to anything, and there's no sense in overselling it. These particular axe murders haven't held any real interest for me, or for the organization that continues to pay my bills. Even after all this time and my habit of offering bombastic semi-annual resignation notices. These axe murders appear at a glance to be clear and boring as day. Small shop owners and assorted pedestrians, often of immigrant stock, terrorized as part of some thuggish racket. Then, after the first few deaths, the demographic broadened to include young couples, particularly young couples whose skin tones weren't quite the same. Another easy guess, not worth too much time, the clan has not so much a toehold as a chokehold on the city, and likewise, it has a grudge against such mismatched unions. The math added up neatly enough. The Birmingham murders were, are, hardly of sufficient caliber to involve our quiet society. But then I got word today of another death, more mundane even than those that preceded it. 
man shot to death in front of witnesses. A priest standing on the steps of St. Paul's, murdered in cold blood for reasons yet unclear. I knew that priest. His name was James Coyle, and we investigated a case together, back around the turn of the century. He was a good, decent man, level-headed and prone to calm, methodical processes. He was not by any means the sort of fellow you'd expect to find gunned down by an enraged madman with a personal vendetta. I simply can't fathom it. Then I got further word from... Oh, let's not call Drake a superior, for he's more like a traffic director than a manager. Suffice it to say that I heard from our resident traffic director that we'd actually received several letters from this same priest over the previous month asking us to investigate the axe murders in his city. I was irate. These letters were addressed to me, and I'd never laid eyes on them. But then I calmed myself, for it was true that I'd been out of the office most of that time, peering into a potential poltergeist pestering people in Providence. I'm sorry, I don't mean to be funny. It wasn't funny at all. What I mean to say is that I was out of the office, and the letters were rerouted through a secretary who handles such things in the absence of operatives like myself. He's a different sort of traffic director, you might say. It's his job to open letters and packages to check for anything untoward, and also to prioritize requests and appeals. When I cornered the lad about his handling of the priest's letters, he trembled and told me precisely what I said above. The only unusual element in the axe murders was the presence of the axe. There was no indication that this was something for the quiet society to investigate. I hated him, because I knew he was right. If I'd been the fellow processing the copious mound of correspondence we get in a month, and if I'd read about the Birmingham case with half my brain turned on, then I probably would have done the very same and disregarded it as a strange case, but not a weird one. I collected the letters that remained. Only two had been yet spared from the fire, and the second of those arrived after the good man's death. The first was a general recounting of the more recent deaths by Hatchet, and the second was more of a personal note. It had not yet been opened, so I sliced it with my desktop blade and read. I wish you'd send me some reply, but I understand how much you travel, and how much you must have to read in the homebound intervals. I almost fear you've not received these missives at all, and perhaps they've been dragged into some hole, lost by the postal service, forgotten by your clerks. But I have faith that the important parts will find you yet. I must have faith, and I must impress upon you, things here are odder than they seem, far odder than the papers would lead you to believe. I fear for the safety of this city, and for my own safety too, yes. Bad things are coming together, and it's sickening my soul to watch them join forces against us. It isn't just the clan, though God knows they're bad enough. But there are others like them. The true Americans, they call themselves. The guardians of liberty. Also, there is a church, if one could be so gauche as to call it that. I've known many fine Baptists in my day, men with whom I could chat and cooperate for the greater good. But this is nothing like that. This is something altogether weirder and worse, and it calls itself Chapelwood. Between this unholy triad, they will see Birmingham burn to the ground. 
or worse. I am afraid, Simon, for everyone. Please come, won't you? I'm afraid, and I am too alone to save everyone who might need saving. He signed the letters J.C. as a gentle, sacrilegious joke between us. Jesus Christ or James Coyle, either way the initials worked, and that's one reason I liked him. One thing we had in common, a propensity in private toward inappropriate humor. Though I prefer to think of it as a finely honed sense of ironic awareness. Is that different? I don't know. I held the letter in my hands and rubbed those initials with my thumb marveling that he was dead already before his handwriting ever reached me. This fine man, assassinated on the steps of his own church by a madman who... who I knew nothing about. I had only the Huntsville office's descriptor to go on, and it wasn't much. Mad and a man. That was the whole sum of what I knew. But I would learn more, goddammit. I packed myself some paperwork of the official variety, the kind that opens doors and loosens tongues, and I went down to the hall to Drake's office. He sat within it, tired and old-looking, with a glass of scotch in one hand and a pen in the other. He took a sip of the former and asked me what I wanted. I want Father James Coyle to be alive and well, and tending his flock at St. Paul's in Birmingham. We were listening to Chapelwood by Cherry Priest. And there's more by her. No, that was, uh, Borden Dispatches, Maplecroft, the Borden Dispatches, okay, we'll see, the Toll, she has quite a few books, she's been given quite a few awards, the Toll, the Bone Shaker, Danny Mead Dread Not a Novel of the Clockwork Century The Inexplicables Dramatized Adaptation Oh, it doesn't have her name on that one. I am Princess X. Mm. 
she has a lot of them. The Agony House. Grave Reservations. Ooh, here's one by Charlene Harris. Indigo, a novel. Oh, yeah, we'll have to hear that one. Let's, we'll start another segment. Thank you for listening. We'll come back with another segment for Charlene Harris. <laughs> 